What's up, Eden Church? Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. If you're like me, how many of you did not want that worship time to end? I, I thought they could have just kept going and going. Nick's the message this morning. Let's just keep singing. So anyways, it's so good to be here with you this morning. My name is Daniel. I'm part of the team here at Eden. If we have not had a chance to meet, I'll be standing at the Connect Center right after service. I'd love to get a chance to shake your hand. We have a small gift. Uh, emphasize the word small. Gift for you in the back. Uh, and uh, we'd love to give that to you as a thank you for being a part of the conversation this morning. Do want to say a special welcome to our online audience. We love that you guys can stay engaged uh, with the conversations that are happening here on the ground level at Eden Church, Eden HQ. Uh, but we are so grateful that you're here this morning. Last week, we started a series called Miracles. And over the next few weeks, we have uh, sort of been positioning ourselves to look at examples about how we can partner with God to make a lasting difference in the world. And whether or not you believe this to be true, uh, is true, that you were meant to do good in the world. And the Bible tells us that God has a purpose and a plan for every single person's life. And there are a lot of things that God wants to use your life to do to accomplish his vision here on earth. And so over the last, last week, we started this series. And over the next few weeks, we're going to keep looking at these examples of how we partner with God to make a lasting difference in the world. Week one, we looked at the first miracle that Jesus ever performed by turning water into wine. And that miracle was really all about the obedience of the servants. They weren't particularly gifted. They didn't do anything particularly special. They didn't seem to have any unique level of influence. They were just obedient to what Jesus told them to do. And somewhere along the way, they watched a miracle right before their eyes. And the power of that miracle is that it solidified the faith. It sealed the faith of some of Jesus' early disciples. And when you look at the New Testament or you look at the Bible, it just seems like a lot of the heroes of faith are people who had a willing spirit. I don't think that we're ever going to be a perfect church. Uh, the goal is not for us to be a big church. And uh, despite my efforts, we are probably not the coolest church. But can you imagine what God would do with Eden if we were a willing church? God, I'm not good at this, but I'm willing to try. I've never served in Eden kids before, but I'm willing to if there's a need. I don't think I have time, but for you in this season, God, I'm going to try to make time. Imagine what God would do with a willing church. That was the testimony of the servants in Jesus' first miracle. So last week was really this inspiring act of obedience. But this week is more of a cautionary tale of unbelief. So this morning, we're going to be in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at one of the four mini biographies of Jesus' life, also known as the Gospel Accounts. And we're going to look at the one that was written by one of Jesus' friends named Matthew. So we'll pick up in Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. It says, When Jesus had finished telling these stories and illustrations, he left that part of the country, and he returned to Nazareth, his hometown, where he taught there in the synagogue, and everyone was amazed and said, where does he get his wisdom, uh, get this wisdom and power to do miracles? So Jesus just finished debriefing with his disciples in Galilee, and Galilee was a place where Jesus spent a lot of time teaching and performing miracles. It was really a hub of industry for some of the surrounding regions. It had a thriving uh, fish economy, uh, 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 fishing economy, and then it says that he left Galilee, and he went to Nazareth, which was almost the complete opposite. It was this small little town, the town that Jesus was raised in, 
And uh, it's the type of town that if you grow up in, you don't always appreciate it. It's the type of town that if you were born in it, a lot of people never leave. And what is true about most small towns today was true about Nazareth. Everyone knows everyone, and news travels fast. And so Jesus shows up to Nazareth on the back end of an amazing season of ministry. And you can maybe imagine the level of excitement Jesus may have been having going back home after he had just had this wonderful experience. Maybe you think about like your greatest year in your career or like your senior year of high school or like your graduating year of college, right? There's a level of excitement. Well, that's how Jesus showed up to Nazareth. He comes to Nazareth, pumped out of his mind. People had just been healed. Lives were being changed. Demons were being cast out. His leadership was growing. His influence was increasing. And so all of the vision that Jesus had about how his ministry could go was beginning to come to fruition. And so when he shows up to Nazareth, he's excited to bless his own people. And it says that he goes to a synagogue, which is basically a church building for Jews. And oftentimes it was centered uh, in the middle of town where all the commerce was and all the people were. And it says that Jesus started teaching. And what's interesting about this passage so far is that it doesn't tell us the content of what Jesus was teaching. If we were to look at each of the chapters leading up to this point, it was all about what Jesus was teaching. And so what that tells us is that this story is not about what Jesus taught. It was about how the people responded. Sometimes people think that spiritual maturity is about what you know about what Jesus taught. But spiritual maturity is really about how you respond to what Jesus teaches. How much of your life conforms to Jesus's teaching? And at first, it seemed like they responded really well. It says that everyone was amazed at his teaching. They asked how he learned uh, to teach with such wisdom and to perform miracles. And I know that that's how you guys feel every Sunday after I teach. You're like, wow, how does he do that? I, stupid joke. Check that off. Never say again. But their response does tell us something about how they view Jesus. Because they were surprised. They were shocked. And that tells us that Jesus was different now than he was when he left. He had grown. He'd become a person of influence. They were surprised. And what's interesting is that this is all that the story tells us about how, this, how his hometown friends and family reacted to his teaching, we would think that they were ready to champion the cause of Christ. But look what happens next. It says, and then when he went home, they scoffed at him. This is like if you're in the South, let me just do some cultural training this morning. If someone from the South says, bless your heart, that's not a good thing, okay? <laughs> that is a facade of support, and that's what happened to Jesus. As soon as Jesus left, they started gossiping behind his back. This is what they said. He's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brother James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live right here among us, right down the street. Where did he learn all these things? And listen what it says, verse 57. It says, and they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Do you ever wonder how something like that happens? What would cause a group of people who are watching positive growth happen in someone else's life, and for some reason they take that growth as their own personal offense? 
There's a saying called the tall poppy syndrome. And depending on where you grew up in the world, this may be familiar to you, but it's this phenomenon where people will try to hold someone back, criticize them, or sabotage their life if they are experiencing any level of success. It's called the tall poppy syndrome. And it has nothing to do with what the person is doing and everything with how their success makes everyone else feel. Because look at what it says. His teaching was amazing. They acknowledged that. They didn't even deny the miracles that he was performing, but they could not accept who Jesus had become. Last month, I don't know what you kind of news you guys get, but uh, last month there was a story uh, happening uh, in Kentucky, and, and people were calling it the Asbury Revival. And what happened is this small little seminary in the middle of Kentucky uh, had this student-led worship service that uh, happened in the beginning of the day, and then uh, it lasted for a few hours, and then a few hours turned into a few days, and a few days turned into a week, and then a week turned into a few weeks, and by the end of it, there was a nonstop worship service that happened at this small little seminary that lasted for three weeks straight, and about 70,000 people from all over the world visited this campus and tried to experience what was happening. And so people were referring to it as Asbury Revivals. And what was interesting is that historically, a revival is this unique expression of worship that happens with a small community of people, and then oftentimes it grows. And I knew, I'd known a few people who had taken the trip out of Kentucky, and one person said that they showed up to this small auditorium, and they started praying. And what seemed like was about uh, a, a, an undisclosed amount of time, they were praying, and then they, chose, they looked down, looked at their watch, and, it's, and his watch said that he had only been praying for 30 minutes. Uh, he thought he had only been praying for 30 minutes, and he found out that he was praying for six hours. And so there was this unique experience happening in this moment. And you would think, you would think that believers from all over the world would be encouraged to see this younger generation crying out to God, desiring uh, worship to God. And for some reason, there was a small group of people who chose to criticize the gathering instead of celebrating what God was doing through them. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have discernment when we're evaluating what is happening in the world, but I am saying don't lead with a critical spirit, especially when it comes to what God may be doing in someone else's lives. Do you know what Jesus said happens to someone who discouraged a child's faith? It's not good, okay? And look at Jesus' response. It says, then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except his own hometown and among his own family. And so Jesus only did a few miracles there because of their unbelief. Jesus came ready to work in people's lives, but they didn't believe. According to Scripture, belief is a really important thing. The Bible tells us that belief produces blessing. Look what it says in John chapter 20, verse 29. It says, Jesus said to them, if you have believed because you have seen me, blessed are those who, uh, who have not seen and yet still believe. Uh, belief can be con comforting. John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Belief is empowering. John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. The Bible tells us that belief saves us. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you 
will be saved over and over again all throughout Scripture. It seems to suggest that our belief is the lane that God uses to perform miracles in the world. Now, what I'm not saying is that whenever we ask God to do something for us, he does it. Because that's not how it always works out. Because sometimes we will go to God and we will ask, and he will say no. Sometimes we go to God and we ask, and he says, not right now. There are people who have begged God for an outcome in their life, and the answer has been no. But if we look to Scripture, the pattern for miracles is always preceded by belief. Belief is like the force in Star Trek. Just kidding. Just kidding. Star Wars. Star Wars. All right? The more you have, the better. But this is the beautiful part about belief is that even if you have a little bit, God will use it for great things. I think about this church. Season after season, God has used my little bit of faith, sometimes your greater faith, sometimes my little faith, and he has done more than we could ask or imagine. And we ask the question, how is that possible? How is it possible that if we give a little, we still get a lot? It's because our faith is not what is really powerful in the first place. What is powerful about our faith is what we place our faith in. And it's only when we have believed in Jesus that our faith has any power to it. But here's the problem with unbelief, is that it cuts off our connection to Jesus as a resource. And this is what happens as a result that our impact becomes extremely limited. Think about the difference between the legacy of Cana and Nazareth. Cana was what we studied last week where Jesus performed his first miracle. Cana is known for the faithfulness of his servants, and it was the first time that Jesus was willing to reveal his glory to the world. And the faithfulness of those servants sealed the faith of Jesus' early disciples. But what is Nazareth known for? Nazareth is known for the miracles that could have happened, but never did. Our impact becomes limited. Our faith becomes limited. Unbelief, this is what unbelief does to your life. It allows for you to only live the life that you can produce. That is what unbelief does. And it never allows for you to experience the life that God can produce. Some of us never experience the power of faith because somewhere along the way, we became convinced that God is not interested in what is happening in our lives. God is there, but he doesn't care. Some of us will never experience the power of faith because somewhere along the way, we got convinced that God is not willing. And I think maybe some of you grew up with this image of God that he's going to do whatever he's going to do regardless of our lives. But when we look to Scripture, that is not how the nature of God's relationship with humanity has worked. God responds to his people. Some of you are convinced that God is not able. Maybe you grew up with a small view of God. And if you imagine that God is small, then your problems are bigger than what God is capable of doing. My kids are still at a really sweet age where they think that I'm I could be the best at everything. And, uh, and I'm not going to lie. I have, n I have not done my part to uh, dissuade that belief, okay? I say, yeah, you're right, I can. 
but recently I've been trying to wean them off so that there's not like this moment where they completely, they stop believing anything I say. And so the other day I told my son, yeah, son, I can't slam dunk. Never have been able to. But they still have this childlike belief. The other day we were literally throwing the baseball in the backyard. And my son says, dad, if you keep practicing, you might be able to play professional baseball someday. And uh, I didn't have the heart to tell him. I said, yes, yeah, son, you're right. You're right, I probably could. But don't you love that childlike faith? It's beautiful. Because they believe with their whole heart. And the way they see me impacts what they think I'm capable of doing. And that is why all throughout Scripture, it elevates a childlike faith. Because a child's faith doesn't have any filters. A child's faith doesn't have a governor that limits what is possible. A child's faith doesn't have limitations. A child's faith doesn't have these negative voices filling their head. They just believe. And that is the model of belief that Jesus says we should have with him. That we can just believe. And that's why my kids don't have a problem coming to me and asking me for anything, even if it's ridiculous. Because they believe. But I think that sometimes people may misdiagnose what is keeping them from God. When I was in college, me and my friends used to do these spiritual belief surveys. So we walk around school. Yeah, we were those annoying people. Okay. And we do these spiritual belief surveys on college campuses, and we'd ask people what they believe. And I remember, like, a common response in college. People would say that if I want to follow Jesus, I have to check my intellect at the door. And I sometimes think that that is like a poor analysis. Because for most people, if you want to see a miracle in your life, you have to check your ego at the door. If you want to see a miracle formed in your life, you have to check your pride at the door. You have to check your self-righteousness at the door. Because when we look at what happened in this account, it wasn't an, an issue of evidence. They didn't question whether or not Jesus could perform the miracle. It was their pride. Can you imagine? How much we have limited God's influence in our life, not because he is unwilling, but because we are unbelieving. And I think about how heartbreaking this story is. Because I imagine that most people who were standing in front of Jesus that day needed what Jesus had. There were hurting people. There were people in need of restoration in their life. There were people whose marriages needed healing. There were people whose body needed healing. There were people whose hearts needed to be mended. And Jesus was the answer to their problem. They were so close to healing, but their hearts got in the way. They could have experienced all the peace that God wanted for them. But there was a barrier. And I wonder how many of us, at least at some point in our life, can identify with the crowd. That we sense God was leading us to something, but there was something in us that would not let him do what he wanted to do in our lives. We fought it. We resisted 
what the Spirit wanted for our lives. And I wonder, what area, uh, what area of your life is God challenging you to believe for more? What area of unbelief can you see has been a hindrance to your faith? And what would it look like today to begin trusting Jesus for more? For some of you, it'll be to step outside of your comfort zone, to give the church a chance to allow for yourself to be known and loved. For some of you, it'll be to begin asking God for the things that you gave up on years ago. And for others of us, it'll be literally stepping into faith for the very first time this morning. But this is the bottom line. When it comes to our relationship with God, we do not have to try to convince God to bless us. That is already his heart for you. All we have to do is to receive the blessing, to open up our lives, to invite God in, to create more space for him to do what only he can do in our lives. But what is that next step for you this morning? This morning, I want to give you an opportunity, if you have never, never trusted in Jesus for more, to consider doing that today. In just a moment, I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads and to close their eyes. And if today you, you feel like you've been distant from God, but you're ready, you're ready to believe. You're ready to try what you haven't tried before and allow for God to step into your story and to do a work that you have not been able to do so far. If that's you this morning, we want to invite you to take a step of faith. So I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes this morning. And today, if you want to receive the gift of salvation, I'm going to ask you to pray this simple prayer after me in your heart. Dear God, I know that I need you. I've been living life by my rules and it's not satisfying the way I thought it would. Today I'm ready to receive the gift of your salvation. I'm ready to open up my heart to experience your love. Today I'm ready to believe that you loved me enough to send your son to die on a cross so that all of my sins and all of my selfish decisions could be wiped clean and I could experience hope in you. Today I ask that you would give me the strength to follow you in the days to come. In Jesus' name, I believe. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning. And for those of you that prayed that prayer in your heart, I'm going to ask you to simply take one more step of faith and on the count of three, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. And the reason we do this every, every so often is because what we have found is that when God is moving in your heart spiritually, it is powerful. You solidify something when you respond physically. And so on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. One, you are so loved by God. Two, you did not end up in this place by accident. Three, go ahead and raise your hand this morning if you prayed that prayer. I see you. I see you. I see you. Any others this morning? I see you in the back. I see you. I see you. 
Father, we thank you for your goodness. And we thank you that every week you are changing lives. That you are moving in this space as we continue to open up our hearts and allow for you to do the deep work of healing and transformation in our hearts so that we could experience the type of peace you, try, you died to give us. God, we thank you for your love. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you do me a favor this morning and celebrate every life that stepped into faith for the first time?